Good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are you today? Super. I just heard it great. I love that. I'm great, too. Well, I'm happy that we are having a great Wednesday. To those of you who are here for an Iowa Summer Writing Festival class this week, I hope you've had wonderful writing time thus far and that you're enjoying your class and that you're enjoying Iowa City. Um, a reminder that your open mic reading is tonight at Beatology from 7 to 8.30 p.m. So have a good time. That will be very fun. Um, for now, how lovely that we are all here for what I feel will be a moving and thought-provoking hour with lo author Lori Erickson. From a childhood on an Iowa farm, Lori grew up to be one of America's top travel writers specializing in spiritual journeys. She is the author of the memoir, Holy Rover, Journeys in Search of Mystery, Miracles, and God. She's written other travel-related books and more than a thousand articles for national and regional publications. Thank you, Lori. Am I good? No? Yeah. Okay. All right. Can you hear me in the back? Good. Good. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, I think that this festival is one of the treasures of the Midwest. A number of years ago, I taught in it uh, and was always delighted to meet people from around the world who are passionate about writing. And uh, I'm really pleased to get the chance to uh, talk with you about a subject that has really been fascinating me for a number of years. Uh, and I um, want to talk about my experiences and hopefully relate it to your writing so that you'll come away from this talk with some tools that might be of help to you in your own, your own projects and maybe in your personal life as well. So several years ago, my 59-year-old brother died of a sudden heart attack the same week that my mother entered memory care in a nursing home. And it was a, a hard time, you know, one of those existential wake-up calls uh, that really got me thinking in a way that I hadn't before about issues of mortality, um, in part because I'm of an age when people start dying that I know. And uh, probably some of you are in that same boat, that the older we get, the more people that we lose. Uh, and some of those losses come at expected times, you know, at the end of a long life, and sometimes they're unexpected. But either way, they present us with deep existential questions. Um, the image I, I like to think of is that one by one people are slipping out of the lifeboat that you're in. And uh, its loss becomes more familiar as a result of that. So today I want to focus on the ways in which writing and death are intertwined. As I said, I'm going to use examples from my own life and a current book project that I'm working on. And I hope to give you some things to think about in your own writing. Death is looking over all of our shoulders. But as writers, we have special tools for dealing with issues of mortality. So what role does death play in your writing? Maybe it's explicit. Maybe you're working on a short story or a novel about a small town tragedy, for example. Or maybe death is present for you in another way. Maybe you're dealing with grief from losing a husband, a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend. 
and mourning is one of the threads in your existence. So my message this morning is make use of this in your writing. Whether or not it's explicit or implicit, these themes, this thinking can really deepen and provide ballast for your work. So I want to tell you a little bit more about my writing. Um, as Margaret said, I had a book that came out last year called Holy Rover, Journeys in Search of Mystery, Miracles, and God, and it's a memoir structured around trips to a dozen holy sites around the world. And uh, it was a, sort of a culmination project of a lot of years of traveling, a lot of years of thinking about the idea of pilgrimage, of journeys to, to holy places, and how they change us. Uh, I had, uh, for a number of years, I've had a website devoted to spiritual travels, and I've also written a lot of magazine articles, online pieces relating to holy sites around the world, and so um, it, w it was a wonderful project. Uh, and then I was casting about trying to think of what to do next, and then tragedy intervened, uh, these losses, and I started to think about the ways in which place had affected my relation to mortality. I, because I've always thought that place has an enormous potential to affect us. Uh, and that can happen in the place that we live, and it can also happen in a place that we visit more temporarily. And so the result of that, of that thinking and that processing of those losses in my family is a, is a book that has not been sold yet. It's being shopped by my agent right now. So hopefully, knock on wood, it'll be sold soon. The working title is called Near the Exit, Travels with a Not-So-Grim Reaper. So I want to tell you a little bit about that book and what I learned from writing about it first. So the book starts out at a Day of the Dead celebration in Chicago. This picture of a woman with a marvelously painted face is from that, that celebration in Chicago. It's one of the largest Day of the Dead celebrations in the United States. And it was a wonderful place to look at an alternative way of dealing with death. Uh, I'm a native Midwesterner. I grew up on a farm in northeast Iowa. And death was not really something that you talked about. And the, the, the Day of the Dead celebrations in, in which, as I'm sure most of you know, it's, it's a much different attitude towards death. The, the idea is that once a year, uh, the dead come back, and you have the chance to interact with them, honor them. You might have a dinner of their favorite foods on a grave. Uh, and it's, it's a blend of celebration and of remembrance and also of mourning that I think is a really, really healthy way of looking at loss. So the book starts out there, and then it's a series of trips, and some of them are to places far away and some places close to home. So the first chapter is on uh, Egypt, uh, because the ancient Egyptians thought about death uh, probably more than almost any other culture in human history. Uh, in the Valley of the Kings, the Great Pyramids. Uh, it's a wonderful place to go and think about death and immortality because that's what the Egyptians were really trying to do was to make sure that people had what they needed to go on to an immortal life. Um, and then the next chapter goes to New Zealand. 
this picture is of uh, a greeting between me and a, a, a Maori woman. A Ma the Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand. And they have a wonderful practice when they meet someone. And that is you, you touch noses, you touch foreheads and noses, and you share breath. And the idea is that when you do so, you're mingling not only your spirits, but you're mingling the spirits of your ancestors because they're always with you as well. And so in this moment of really surprising intimacy with a total stranger, you are asked to really reflect on not just you, but where you stand in a long line of, of people. Uh, and um, so in New Zealand, I talk about some of the ways in which I learned from the Maori I, w I was traveling with about their ideas about ancestors and how they are with us all the time and that we can draw on their wisdom. Another chapter, I, I go to Mexico and Guatemala and uh, do a, a Mayan set of tours, Mayan and Aztec. And this image is of the, the god of death in the um, Aztec uh, tradition. This is from a museum in Mexico City. And it's a, he's one creepy guy. You know, his liver is hanging out, he's skeletal. And one of the things that was really interesting to explore was the ways in which the current contemporary Day of the Dead celebrations draw on much older traditions, Aztec and Mayan traditions. And so the, the ubiquitous images of, of skulls and skeletons that you see in Day of the Dead that relates to this guy, uh, as well as they have other, there, there's also a female figure of a goddess of death as well, but he, he's the big one. And he has a long, long Aztec name that I can, I'm not even going to try to pronounce. It has many, many syllables, but. Um, I also, oh, another shot from that trip. Uh, this is the Temple of the Jaguar in Tikal, Guatemala, one of the most beautiful of all the Mayan sites. Another place I went to was Crestone, Colorado. And Crestone, Colorado, I think, is one of the treasures of the United States. Hardly anyone has heard about it. It's a small town uh, near the Great Sand Dunes National Monument in south-central Colorado. And it has more spiritual sites, centers, per square inch than certainly anywhere I'm aware of in North America and might be in the world. Um, and the reason why is that in the 1970s, there was a wealthy industrialist, benefactor, excuse me, uh, who uh, bought up a bunch of land in this remote part of Colorado, and he made an offer to spiritual communities around the country that they could come and have the land for free as long as they were willing to come and build and establish a community there. So as a result, Crestone has ashrams and Buddhist centers, and there's a Catholic uh, monastery there, lots of New Age centers, uh, just a, more than about 25 different spiritual centers in this small town of 150 people. Uh, though the surrounding county has a thousand, but still, it's pretty sparsely populated and pretty remote. But the reason why I was interested in going there is that Crestone has the only non-denominational open-air cremation ground in the country. 
so I'm sure you've seen photos, uh, films, or maybe in person of the burning of bodies in India. Uh, and in the United States, if you are, uh, there are places where if you are Hindu, you can have this sort of open air cremation. But this is the only place where there is a, a public permit for the burning of bodies. You have to be from Crestone in order to have this ceremony done there. But uh, when I heard about that, I thought that was, what a fascinating thing to, to visit a community where people were used to seeing the bodies of their friends and neighbors be burned. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from that portion of my book a little bit later. So keep this image in mind. This is the cremation ground. Uh, and in the center is the platform that they use for the burning, burning of, of bodies. I also traveled to Rome uh, and Assisi, where Fran St. Francis of Assisi lived, of course. Uh, this is the Vatican, and what a lot of people aren't aware of is that there's a very important site underneath the Vatican. It's called the Necropolis, the City of the Dead. And it is, um, the, the Vatican is built on a graveyard uh, back in the days before Christianity came to Rome. That, that was one of, one of the areas where, where people were buried. And by tradition, it's where the apostle Peter uh, was buried after he was martyred uh, by the Roman emperor. And so uh, there's a very, very long tradition that Peter is buried there. And at a certain point, um, several hundred years after Christianity came into power in Rome, um, the church evacuated all the other graves. Uh, of, the, of the bodies, and the only one they kept were bones that they thought were from Peter. And so, uh, and in the 40s and 50s, there was a big archaeological project underneath the Vatican to uh, preserve the, the, the rest of the graveyard, and so while they took the bodies out, the, the markers are still there. A lot of them date back hundreds, hundreds of years before uh, the era of Peter and the founding of the church. And they really have done a marvelous job of tracing the, the, the religious history of the city from, you know, there, there, are, there's, there are, are Egyptian motifs down there of people who followed the Egyptian gods, and then, of course, people who followed the Roman gods, uh, and then the, the start of the Christian era. And the end of the tour is you get to see a small, small glimpse of what, by tradition, is is thought to be the, the, the bones of St. Peter. So it was a really amazing experience uh, to be there. And, um, and it led then to other insights about Rome. And I'm, I hope I'll have time to read a, a little bit of that section as well. But not all the places that I went to are far away. Um, this is a picture of my mom in her nursing home. Uh, this was just after she moved in. So we, we made her home or her, her new home, a little more homey than this uh, picture shows. But I w one of the chapters is on nursing homes because it really is one of the places where you come to terms with mortality. Uh, virtually everyone has visited a nursing home. Uh, it's much easier to get to than it is to go to Egypt or to Rome. And it has profound, powerful lessons to teach us, I think. And in writing the book, I. You know, one of the things I think happens when you write about something is that you really learn what you think about it, and you really get the chance to deepen your thoughts about an experience. Um, 
So one of the things I realized in writing about nursing homes was that they really are foreign countries, especially uh, a memory care unit that has a locked entrance to it. So there's a border crossing, right? You have to have permission to get in, just as you would at passport control if you're traveling abroad. It has its own time zone. <laughs> if you've ever visited someone at a nursing home, you know that time moves at a different pace in a nursing home. And there are calendars on the walls and clocks, but you know, people really aren't tuned in to the same time zone as the rest of the world, even to the seasons, because most of the time people really don't go outside very much. Um, they have their own climate, and they're too hot, especially during the winter for my taste. Uh, and they have their own customs, their own uh, culture. And so I tried to look at that in that chapter about uh, what can you learn from visiting the foreign country of, of a nursing home. Another chapter is about graveyards. I have always been a fan of graveyards. It's one of those things that I think you either are or you, or you aren't a fan of graveyards. And I've always loved them. And I really relish the chance to learn more about them, to learn about their history, to learn about their symbolism. And uh, I was fortunate to uh, have a friend, Lauren Horton, some of you possibly may know him. He's the retired state historian of Iowa, and his specialty is Victorian death customs. And he loves cemeteries too. And so we had any number of wonderful conversations, long conversations over coffee, and, and him telling me about the history of cemeteries and about the symbolism and, and what you can learn from walking through a cemetery. Uh, so again, the writing helped me get a window into something that I didn't have before as a result of learning about it and, and writing about it. And so all these trips were outer journeys of one sort or another, but it also was an interior journey and it really the writing of the book helped me process those losses and other losses as well because certainly uh, there, I've had other losses too uh, not just my brother and my mother and so I wanted to talk next about some of the things that I learned uh, and some of these may sound obvious because people of course have been thinking about mortality for millennia uh, but Here's how I sort of processed them through the course of the writing for this. Oops, sorry. So the image here is of a video wall at the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City. And what it shows, you can't see the movement of it, but what happens is that all of these faces slowly fade into skeletons, fade into skulls, and then they fade back again. So as you're standing in front of this art installation, you can see, in a sense, the deaths of all of these people. But they die, and then they come back again. And it was a really profound experience to stand in front of that video and, and to realize all the ways in which, again, it played into the themes of Day of the Dead, of the long traditions in Mexico relating to the Aztec and the Mayans, of a familiarity with death that I think we don't have in, in Western culture. Not sure why that is happening, but hopefully it'll stop. Um, 
And what I really like about this art installation is, is the, the fluidity of it, the seamlessness of it, that this recognition that death is always with us, it's always in us. You know, our faces also have skulls underneath them. And, it, and, and I like, too, the fact that it goes back and forth. So it doesn't just show the death, but then it shows the life as well. And so I think that's one of the things I learned from my writing project was the ways in which death is always with us and then goes away and then comes back. Hope you can see this. This is um, a grave marker and it has uh, a hand with a finger pointing up to heaven. Uh, and. Uh, that was another thing that I, that I got the chance to think about was all the symbolism relating to death. And I invite you to walk through a cemetery sometime and really look at the stones. A lot of the markers, the symbolism is pretty obvious. I mean, this is pretty obvious, for example. But, you know, once you start looking at it, it's like a code, really. So if, it has, if, it's, if a, a marker has a lamb on it, and I'm talking 19th century markers primarily, that means that, that there was a, a young child who was, who was buried there. Uh, if it's a column that has the top broken off, that's not vandalism. That was done deliberately, and that means that someone's life was, was cut short prematurely, and someone who had a long life would have a complete column. At, at the top. So the Victorians had um, a, a really you know, elaborate symbolism, elaborate customs relating to death that we don't have. And in some ways that's good. You know, the practices relating to having to wear black, for example, after a loved one dies. You know, the, I, I, you know, you know some people would have been in, in, in mourning most of their lives, you know, given, the, given how common death was in the Victorian period. And so, you know, that seems sort of grim and depressing. On the other hand, in our modern world, we have no way of knowing if someone has experienced a loss and is still grieving. And, and so in some ways, you know, that custom of, of, of wearing mourning clothes has a deeper, deeper truth about it that I think is... You know, it would be nice to bring back some part of that. Um, so I'm going to go back and uh, do a couple of other things before going on to that next slide. Some of the most interesting conversations I had in relation to the writing of this book were with funeral home directors, which was not a population that I had ever spent a lot of time with before. But I really really found them interesting, in part because, of course, they're dealing with death on a daily basis. That is their job. And, uh, and I realize, you know, there have been abuses in the funeral home industry, you know, Jessica Mitford's you know, classic book on the American way of death. But there also are a lot of really good people in the profession. And I got the chance to talk with, with several of them. One of the, th a couple of comments that they made that I thought were really interesting, and that's that um, one of them mentioned that she thinks the current model of, of funeral home is probably going extinct, uh, especially the funeral homes that are in big Victorian buildings uh, that have sort of a gloomy air about them. She said, no one wants that anymore. Instead, the new trend is for bright and sunny places where people can celebrate people's lives. And of course, that's wonderful in all sorts of ways. But there also, there is a difference between a wedding and a funeral. 
<laughs> and, and I think sometimes uh, in our modern world, our, our hesitancy to confront the, the, the full meaning of death, the finality of death, can lead to a kind of um, superficiality that pretends as if it's only a celebration when someone dies. Um, another thing that, uh, that one of the funeral directors said that I thought was really interesting, um, I asked her, what's the hardest part of your job? And I thought it would be dealing with human remains, especially embalming, but it wasn't. Instead, she said the hardest part of her job is the number and growing number of people who come to her looking for answers about their loss, uh, who really are asking existential spiritual questions. Because you know, they, they don't have any background in, in any type of faith or, or, or spirituality. They have never, this, this may be the first time they've ever confronted a hard loss before, and they're naturally wondering how to deal with it. And, and, sh and she said, you know, that's not my job. <laughs> I'm not trained in that, and I can't really help people with that. And so that was one of the reasons why I, ho I wanted to write the book was, I think one of my messages is, you need to think about these things before you actually need to think about them. Uh, because it's a lot easier to do so from the viewpoint of a philosophical perspective than it is from when you lose, when you lose someone who's, who's really, really important to you. So in many ways, I felt in writing the book and in thinking about these issues, I joined a larger community. You know, the community of people who have, who know that they're going to die. And that was part of my book as well, and the writing of my book, was to really think about what it will be like to die. Uh, and in that, I, um, I got a lot of inspiration from, from Buddhism and from Buddhist friends. Uh, one friend in particular uh, talked to me about going on a retreat, a Buddhist retreat, in which their job for the weekend was to die. And so what they did on Friday night, uh, they gathered together and the, 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 the teacher said, okay, Sunday, 10 o'clock that's when you're going to die. And all of you need to think about, first of all, how you're going to go. And then, you know, is it going to be sudden? Are you going to have a death by cancer, etc.? I mean, you get to choose the, how, how, you, how you exit. But more importantly, how, how would you meditate? How would you think if you knew that in a little over 24 hours you were going to breathe your last? What does that mean? And, and so, of course, it was an imaginative exercise, but he said it was an incredibly profound experience because people took it very, very seriously. And uh, one of the things he did was he wrote letters to people that he loved. Uh, he thought about how to dispose of his most precious possessions. Uh, and he really, by the end of the weekend, had gone through this deep, cathartic grieving and also this sense, of course, of joy that he wasn't dead yet. Uh, so I haven't done one of those retreats, but I have to admit I am intrigued by it. So one of the, another thing that I learned, and this relates to this picture, which is of a group of Tibetan Buddhist monks who are creating a sand mandala. Some of you are probably familiar with this ritual. So uh, for 
much of a week, uh, they will, as a spiritual ritual exercise, they will use little grains of colored sand to create a, a mandala, uh, which is this intricate design in the middle there, uh, just from colored sand. And they're wearing masks in the picture because you don't want to like sneeze <laughs> when you're doing this, because that would really upset the other monks. Uh, and, and so you have to be really, it, it is a mindfulness exercise, among other things. But at the end of the week, so they spend hours and hours putting this together. And, and at the end, they have this beautiful work of art, exquisitely detailed. And then at the end of the week, they go to the nearest river and they dump it down in the river with proper prayers and rituals and all of that. But it's meant to be an enactment of the impermanence of life, a celebration of the beauty of it, and then the fact that all of it goes away. Uh, and that picture, that idea, is one of the major takeaways I had from my sort of project of writing about death, thinking about death, was holding it lightly. Uh, that we're here just for a you know, brief click of the fingers in, in many ways. And so realizing that can make you depressed or it can make you very motivated to savor every moment, knowing it won't last. I also want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about a community organization that I have been involved with for a number of years that definitely relates to this topic, and it also relates to one of the handouts that you were given in your packets. Um, Honoring Your Wishes is a program affiliated with the local hospice uh, association here, and it has counterpoints in many different places around the country. It's an organization that tries to encourage people to do advanced healthcare directives well before they need them. Uh, recognizing that the American way of death has some real problems with it, that many people say they want to die at home, but most people end up dying in a hospital. Often they die having a lot of medical interventions that really are problematic in a lot of ways. They might extend people's lives, but they also are not things that you want to go through. Uh, and so honoring your wishes uh, encourages people and makes it easy for people to uh, initiate conversations with loved ones, uh, designate uh, a medical power of attorney, but more importantly, to have conversations with people that you love. And so that if you are in a, in a situation where you cannot communicate your wishes, that your loved ones know what you would want. Uh, and I think of it as an incredible gift to your family, for one thing, because I myself have seen siblings really have a lot of conflict over well-meaning siblings. One person says, well, we have to do everything we can to keep, to keep mom alive. And the other sibling says, well, but would she want to be kept alive in this state? And so if you can tell people in advance what your wishes might be in that sort of situation, it is a tremendous gift. Uh, and you never know, of course, when you might need these sorts of, of papers, and so everyone is encouraged to complete them. So one of the things that Honoring Your Wishes has done, and I serve on the board, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm putting in this plug here, 
uh, is uh, it's a, a way of raising recognition for the whole idea of advanced care directives, and so it's the Love Letters Project. And uh, what it is, it's a writing uh, contest uh, that ends actually at the end of July, but there might be a little bit of wiggle room on, on that too. Uh, and it's, uh, people are encouraged to write, write something on themes of, of love and forgiveness and gratitude. Yes, Jane Dorman, who's director of Honoring Your Wishes, helped me out there. Thank you. Um, and uh, the writing contest is being held in conjunction with a visit to Iowa City uh, in October of an author who has written a book. Uh, relating to these themes, Dr. Ira Bayak, The Four Things That Matter Most. And so the winner of the competition will get the chance to have lunch with Dr. Bayak, and uh, the, will also, the entry will be published in the Little Village. Uh, and there's, there's some other details too that are explained in detail on that, that handout. So I, I encourage you to enter. I mean, I can't think of a better group of people who might be interested in submitting something. They're not supposed to be long. I think a thousand words is, is the limit. Uh, they can be poetry, they can be essays, they can be in the form of a letter that you might write to someone that you could then share with them. Uh, but I think it's really a lovely way of sort of spreading this message of, um, I think in some ways, the power of writing in relation to death, that, uh, it can be a powerful thing to put your, your thoughts, your words down on paper. And also, I think of writing as a kind of, you know, communication with the dead. I mean, think of the ways in which people's words live on after they die because of what they wrote. Uh, and uh, I know in my, in my own life, one of the things that we did after my mother entered the nursing home was we went, cleared out her house, of course. And we found in a dresser drawer, she'd saved a packet of love letters that my dad had sent to her when they were courting many years before. And I was absolutely astonished because I come from a long line of people who never talked about their feelings. <laughs> and my dad, who was an Iowa farmer all of his life, had written just a wonderful set of letters over about the course of a year. And they were tender and sweet and loving. And it really was. He had, he had died and, you know, 15 years before. And so, but I felt like my dad was there. Not only was my dad there, it was like my dad, but not my dad. <laughs> you know, it was a new part, a new aspect of him that I hadn't realized was there. And so, you know, that's a love letter uh, in multiple senses of, of the word. So, encourage you to, to contribute to the Love Letters Project. So I wanted to read you before I, um, a couple of short passages from my book before I open it up for questions. Um, just short sections. Um, the first one, I mentioned that one of the chapters is on visiting Italy and Rome and Assisi in particular. And one of the places that uh, I really found very meaningful was the Protestant Cemetery in Rome. Maybe some of you have been there. Uh, this is one of the most famous pieces of statuary from uh, the cemetery of an angel draped over a, 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 a monument coffin. Uh, so let me, let me tell you some more. What's popularly known as Rome's Protestant cemetery is a misnomer, a guide told me at its gate. We have Catholics here too mostly people who wanted to be buried next to their non-Catholic relatives, he said. 
No matter what their faith, the dead in this graveyard represent a who's who of mostly foreign-born artists, authors, and political leaders, people who'd fallen under the spell of the city and didn't want to leave it, even in death. Many came from Northern Europe, fleeing the overcast skies, mediocre food, and repressed citizens of their home countries. One meal of bucatini alla amat, and I'm mangling the Italian, but of this exquisite Italian dish, and an afternoon spent lounging in the sunlight of the Piazza Navona meant that they could never go home again. We toured the cemetery on our last day in Rome, bookending our stay in the city with graveyards. Unlike the claustrophobic environs of the necropolis underneath St. Peter's Basilica, this sun-dappled cemetery invited lingering. Bordered by walls that muffle the sounds of the city and filled with well-tended flowers, bushes, and trees, it's a showcase for funereal art. In one section, an angel drapes herself over a coffin in despair. In another, a young man reclines on his side atop his tomb, his faithful lapdog tucked into a curve of his arm. Nearby, a boy perches on a small pillar, his head turned to watch visitors approach. At its entrance, there's even a pyramid, constructed in the first century AD by a merchant who'd caught the bug for all things Egyptian. This cemetery's most famous inhabitants are the 19th century poets Percy Bysshe Shelley and John Keats. In what turned out to be a stroke of luck for their posthumous literary careers, both had tragic early deaths. Keats, you can laugh, that's fine. <laughs> One of the things I want to do in this book is to write about death in a way that wasn't totally depressing, and so there's, there are a lot of quirky things relating to death, actually. Keats, who'd come to Rome to soak up its warmth and sunlight in a vain effort to treat his tuberculosis, died at 25. Shelley drowned off the coast of Italy at 29 years of age. In his pocket was found a book of Keats's poems. Their deaths set a high bar for their fellow Romantic-era poets. Like many writers, I sometimes amuse myself by composing my epitaph, one last chance to impress readers with my words. I've long envied the ones chosen by Keats before his death, a sentence brilliant in its brevity and power. Here lies a soul whose name was writ in water. But until I stood at his grave, I hadn't appreciated the full poignancy of this statement. Keats, whose work received such scathing reviews that they were said to have contributed to his death, was certain that nothing he wrote would be remembered. Let me show you a picture of his, his grave. The famous epitaph is right at the bottom. The rest of it was added by his friends, uh, but he himself wanted to have only the epitaph. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. Yet today, the people who visit his grave, especially the English majors like myself, who's, who've memorized Ode on a Grecian Urn, look at that epitaph and sigh. It's a pleasant sigh, in keeping with the enjoyable melancholy of the Romantic era, but still, it's full of regret. If only Keats had known how his literary standing would improve after he'd breathed his last. Standing by his grave, I thought of all the ways people try to ensure that they'll be remembered, from long epitaphs and grand mausoleums to commissioning artists to paint their portraits. I'd read many markers with variations of never forgotten, a statement made with the best of intentions but nearly always thwarted by the passage of time. Keats teaches us that earthly immortality isn't something we can orchestrate. Even if we place our tombs next to busy thoroughfares, as the Romans did, 
and have our likeness sculpted in marble, the odds are good that we'll be forgotten. Tis best to let time sort out who gets remembered and who doesn't. When Oscar Wilde, ever a fan of extravagant gestures, visited this cemetery in 1877, he prostrated himself at Keats's grave, calling it the holiest place in Rome. Forget the pagan temples, the Vatican, and the many churches in the city. Instead, he found the sacred here, at the grave of a young man he'd met only through his words, which turned out to be immortal after all. And I want to read you one other passage um, that relates to Crestone, a quirky, hippie town in south-central Colorado that I was really, really intrigued by. Uh, I think I'm okay on time. In the late afternoon, we drove to the cremation ground, heading out of town for several miles and turning right at a sign that bore a single word, pyre. The old-fashioned word was evocative of much older traditions, from pyres on the banks of the Ganges River in India to pre-Christian funeral rites in the British Isles. Fire has always been an essential part of religious ceremonies. Add the element of death and you have a powerful combination indeed. To be honest, I was bracing myself for my first sight of the cremation ground. As much as I appreciated the homemade aesthetic of many of the buildings in Crestone, as well as the creative reuses of old school buses, I mentally prepared myself for the fact that this place might be simply depressing and ramshackle. Instead, I found it deeply moving. The sign at its entrance set the tone. You have entered a sacred space, it read. Please enter this place with reverence, honoring those whose lives were celebrated here. A circular fence of bamboo surrounded the site with a half dozen openings into an inner courtyard. Stepping inside, my eyes were immediately drawn to the structure in the center, a rectangular platform with three feet high and 10 feet, about three feet high and 10 feet long. There were scorch marks on it, but no other signs of its use. Brilliantly blooming yellow flowers filled the rest of the space, their stalks swaying gently in the wind. Walking the perimeter, I read the handcrafted copper plaques nailed to the posts. Each held the name of someone who had been cremated here, most also contained some other design as well, from an Irish harp to a yin-yang symbol. Above the fence, I could see the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in the distance, their peaks obscured by late afternoon clouds. The site was silent, except for the muted sound of the wind. It wasn't grim or depressing at all. Instead, it felt like liminal space. It was different somehow from the rest of Crestone, existing in a betwixt-and-between place on the border between prairie and mountain and life and death. I remembered Kyrena's description of the final days of her husband. This was a woman I met earlier, explained earlier in the chapter. I remembered her description of the final days of her husband, Harold Danforth, a death that seemed as perfect a send-off into eternity as I could imagine. During the last six weeks of his life, volunteers from the Crestone End of Life Project had provided support and comfort to both of them. After his passing, they helped her wash and anoint his body, which was kept at home for three days, a period during which friends and loved ones came to pay their respects. He was never left alone, even at night, 
a hearkening back to much older traditions. Very early on the morning of the third day, his body was transported to the cremation site, and as the first fingers of dawn started to be visible on the horizon, the fire was lit. It was in winter, so the air was cold, and the scene was very somber, Kyrena remembered. But the fire brought warmth and light, and gradually the mood shifted. Everyone was given a branch of juniper and came forward to place it on the pyre. And then people came forward one by one to share stories about my husband. There was drumming and singing and clapping. The cremation took about two hours, and by the end of it, the mood had changed. It was almost a kind of alchemy. I felt enveloped in love and compassion. The entire process helped me move beyond my grief into a place of acceptance and even joy. As I was leaving the cremation ground, I chose an exit at random, one in the general direction of our car. Before I left the courtyard, I stopped for one last look at the pyre, trying to imprint upon my mind this remarkable sacred site blending death and life, this place adorned by brilliant yellow flowers and watched over by the brooding peaks of the Sangre de Cristos. Then I turned and my eyes saw a plaque, one of the many nailed to the fence. The name on it startled me, Davida Decora. Decora, an Indian name I'd never heard in any other context, was the name of the small Iowa town where I'd grown up. And there it was, the last thing I saw as I left the enclosure. It goes without saying that this was a crestone thing. But I think it was more than that. It was a reminder that in some inexplicable way, the cremation ground is my home, too. So just a couple more things I'm going to say. A uh, couple more pictures here. Actually, this is my last picture. So this is not a place that I wrote about in my book, but I love the symbolism of this picture. It shows a kiva, uh, an underground ceremonial uh, man-made constructed cave that um, Native peoples of the Southwest in the United States uh, have constructed for many, many centuries. And this is a picture taken at Mesa Verde National Park in Colorado. And I love the, the, the blending of dark and light in the photo, the light shafts coming down, the ladder going down into the ground. And to me, there's something about this that serves as a wonderful metaphor for what thinking about death does for us. It takes us down deeper, and it allows the light to shine there. But it also is a mixture of light, light and dark. You know, you don't want to just deny the darkness, the pain of it, the, the sorrow of death. But it's, it's a mixture. It's blended. And Akiva is also a place where you do your ceremony, and then you come back up into the light. And that sort of back and forth in Day of the Dead, in you know, the imagery of, of places around the world. Um, I think that's really a, a piece of wisdom that, that we would do well to remember. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I want to, oh, just, oops. 
I, I wanted to say there are several handouts at the back. Uh, there's uh, packets relating to honoring your wishes and also the Love Letters Project. I know you got it in your packet, but it's a reminder of that. I also have some cards um, about my book, Holy Rover. Feel free to take one of those so you remember the name. I'd love to have you read it. Um, and uh, thank you so much for being here today, and good luck on your own writing.